Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. The following is an iHeartRadio podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. The musical innovation and creativity in the world of video games and interactive media owes an unpayable debt to Koji Kondo and the music he wrote for The Legend of Zelda. This is The Soundtrack Show. Welcome back to The Soundtrack Show. I'm your host, David W. Collins, and this episode is all about the music from The Legend of Zelda, a video game, or more accurately, a powerhouse video game series that first debuted on the Nintendo Entertainment System, or NES, in North America on August 22, 1987. This episode is our second look at video game music, and not coincidentally, our second episode about composer Koji Kondo, who wrote the music for multiple games in the Zelda series. In our previous episode about Kondo-san, we discussed his groundbreaking music for the game of Super Mario Bros. We also discussed a brief history of video games, home consoles, the musical limitations that composers and sound designers faced, imposed by the synth hardware within those consoles at the time, and we had a discussion about the power of video game music. If you haven't had a chance to listen to my episode about the music of Super Mario Brothers, now is a great time to check it out, as it definitely functions as a companion episode to this series on The Legend of Zelda. In this episode, we're going to talk about the creation of the first Legend of Zelda game, discuss its musical themes, do some musical breakdowns, and then talk about some of the other installments in the series, ultimately leading to another episode. Because it's not just about the music in the first game, but the creative evolution and musical breakthroughs that happen over the course of a decade 
across several titles that make the music to The Legend of Zelda so special. This series on The Legend of Zelda will culminate in what I think is ultimately one of the most important breakthroughs in the history of video game music. 1998's The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. And rather than discussing the power of video game music again, if you recall from my Mario Brothers episode, I discussed the limited amount of music times the hours spent playing times the copies sold to illustrate how important just one melody could be. I'm going to share a bit of my own history with this title and this series to illustrate a real-world example of that phenomenon, the power of video game music. But first, a bit of history. The Legend of Zelda is the first major game in the action-adventure puzzle genre, carefully balancing role-playing and strategy elements with fast action, puzzles, and most importantly, exploration. It features a much more robust story and world than the Mario series does, though both have grown over the years in their complexity. And in many ways, as a game, The Legend of Zelda is the opposite of Mario. Super Mario Bros., and many arcadey platformers like it, is pretty linear. You go from point A to point B to point C. The direction is clear. The objective is clear. Go from left to right. Jump. Throw fire. Jump. Get to the castle at the end of each level. Save the princess. That's it. Simple. Zelda, even in its primitive 8-bit origins, is anything but simple. And I don't even mean the plot, though I'll discuss it briefly now. Your job as the player is to save a kingdom in the land of Hyrule from the evil Ganon, who has this magical item called the Triforce of Power. The only way to save the kingdom is to find eight pieces of the Triforce of Wisdom, which Princess Zelda has hidden in eight underground dungeons. Zelda, by the way, is named after author F. Scott Fitzgerald's wife, Zelda Fitzgerald, at the suggestion of Nintendo PR. It struck them as an interesting name, and this suggestion was well-received by game director Shigeru Miyamoto. Anyway, you get all the pieces of the Triforce of Wisdom, find and work your way through Death Mountain to defeat Ganon, now that you have the Triforce, save Zelda, and restore peace to the kingdom. After all, at this point, all of its citizens seem to be living in caves. And along the way, you pick up different classes of swords, shields, bows, arrows, weapons, gadgets, maps, compasses, even a magical recorder that you will play to gain secret access to hidden areas, or have its melody carry you on the wind to a different side of the map. Yes, I said map, as in a map of the overworld of Hyrule. This is a non-linear game, especially non-linear for its time. So non-linear, in fact, that director Shigeru Miyamoto received pushback during development to make the game's critical path a little more clear, a little more straightforward. But for Miyamoto-san, the exploration of how to move forward was the whole point. The lack of clarity and the need for discovery was the whole point. Legend has it, pun intended, that The Legend of Zelda was inspired by Miyamoto's childhood experiences growing up in the Kyoto region of Japan, getting happily lost in the woods without a map, and stumbling upon a lake he didn't know was there. At one point, he found an underground passage in the woods, but it was too dark to see, so he came back later with a lantern and was rewarded with discoveries of underground chambers. In The Legend of Zelda, 
Miyamoto-san chose a medieval Europe type of setting with a bit of Tolkien flair. Link, the main character, named as our, the gamer's avatar, or Link to this digital world, is an elf. His green tunic is inspired by Disney's Peter Pan. The action is part samurai and part Lord of the Rings. The adventure and dungeon hunting is part Indiana Jones. It's top-down view of the world, its camera, with its sprawling exploration, was unprecedented for its time. These are the things that Miyamoto set out to capture. And the music reflects this. More on that in just a bit. First, a personal story. I have to confess, beyond Star Wars, which you all know that I love and work on, The Legend of Zelda captured my imagination and attention as a child in a significant way. The summer before my seventh grade, 1987, I turned 12. As a birthday present, I was allowed to pick out one video game for my Nintendo, my NES. At this point, I only had Super Mario Bros., Duck Hunt, and Gyromite. Maybe I'd borrowed a few other games from friends, but I went with my mother to Long's Drug Store in Vacaville, California. There was a small electronics and photo development counter in the right corner of the store, and it also sold video games, hanging behind the salesperson on little pegs. For weeks that summer, I had been seeing ads for a new game called The Legend of Zelda, repeatedly on TV. Watch Zelda become a legend on your Nintendo Entertainment System. Zelda! Which way to go? Good times! Legend of Zelda, a never-ending adventure new for your Nintendo Entertainment System. Zelda! Now, the ads didn't say much about what the game actually was, but it at least made me aware of the new release. Did you see the latest Nintendo newsletter? Whoa, nice graphics. I'd like to get my hands on that game. You mean you haven't played it yet? We can play it on my Nintendo Entertainment System. It's the Legend of Zelda, and it's really rad. Those creatures from Ganon are pretty bad. Octoroks, Tech Tech's Libras, too. But with your help, our hero pulls through. Yeah, go Link, yeah, get Zelda. Awesome. Intense. The Nintendo Entertainment System. Your parents help you hook it up. The Legend of Zelda sold separately. And when I got to the counter at Long's, amongst all of the Nintendo boxes, I saw this one shiny gold box. I asked to see it, naturally, and the gentleman behind the counter handed it to me to look at, under the watchful eye of my mom. It just looked special. It was gold with this beautiful font and this big shield crest on the front, and inside that crest was a cutout window in the box where you could see that the game cartridge inside was also colored a shiny gold. Whoa, this was something special. It had to be. I pored over the writing and photos on the back of the box. The pictures looked intriguing, but it was a certain line of text that really caught my attention. Quote, Extended playing power. Zelda is programmed to remember everything you find on your journey, so you never have to start your search empty-handed. End quote. Whoa. I want to pause to paint a picture of 1987 here. It's probably difficult for many of you to imagine, but console games didn't have the ability to save your progress up until that point. 
I mean, Nintendo had released a Famicom disc add-on product in Japan to save progress in games. And in fact, Zelda was the flagship title developed for this add-on. But in North America, we had never seen anything like this before. Not in consoles. So their solution for a game save was to include a small memory chip right on the motherboard of the game cartridge itself to save your progress. This was revolutionary to me at age 12. I mean, I didn't know anything about home computers. The only thing I knew about home computers was Oregon Trail on the Apple IIe at my elementary school. There was no internet in wide use. It barely existed. And most people had never even heard of it. Even if they had, there was no infrastructure to use it widely or much content, if any, to even look at. These were the early days of digital in a very analog world. So this, the ability to save games to a 12-year-old, was a pretty big deal. Super Mario Brothers, Castlevania, even Mike Tyson's Punch-Out, which didn't even have a pause button, these were games that you played that forced you to start over at the beginning each time you played them. Though Mike Tyson's Punch-Out admittedly had a code system. It was maddening to me. I'd be deep into a game like Castlevania on my way to Dracula after fighting so hard to get there, playing for a couple of hours, and then it would be called away to dinner and I'd hit pause or something like that, and someone would come and turn off the console thinking I left it on by accident. No! No, I have to start over! Ugh! It's crazy what we put up with at the time in our games, but that's all we knew. I mean, it wasn't much different than the arcade machines from just a few years prior that were all the rage. You always started over at the beginning. But The Legend of Zelda was promising to be different. Huh. I took it home. I popped it into the Nintendo. And it asked me to enter my name. Oh, what's this? I have to register? Okay. D-A-E-I-D. There. And start. Um, okay. What do I do? I mean, where do I... Okay, I can move it this way. That way. Where do I go? Oh, what's that dark area over there? Oh, it's a cave. Oh, I just went downstairs. An old wizard living in a cave, the entrance to which is on the very first screen of the game, says to me, quote, It's dangerous to go alone. Take this, end quote. And I am gifted a wooden sword. And from there... For the next solid calendar year of my young life, The Legend of Zelda took me on a weekly, if not daily, adventure through Hyrule. Not once, but twice, as you could beat the game and then unlock a whole new, harder version of that same game where everything on the map had changed. And what a journey it was. I had a Hyrule map pinned up on my wall in my room. There was no internet. And the first intentional line of dialogue in the game was the designer's way of getting gamers or kids like me to talk to each other about the secrets that we discovered throughout the kingdom of Hyrule. It's dangerous to go alone. Hey kid, did you know that if you use the ladder to cross the river to the rock wall just left of center of the screen, you can place a bomb in the wall and open up a secret cave? But watch out for Zora. Hey kid, did you know that the melody on the recorder when played at the lake will dry up that lake and reveal the secret entrance to the fifth dungeon? Hey kid, did you know that you have to buy that leg of meat as bait at the secret store in order to get past the Goria in dungeon 7? And on and on and on. The problem? I didn't know anyone else at my school who was even playing Zelda. At least not for months, as I got The Legend of Zelda around the time it was released. It was dangerous to go alone, indeed. 
With a map on my wall, the console plugged into an old 12-inch TV via coaxial cable, and a monthly subscription to Nintendo Power Magazine that I would scour for Zelda tips and tricks the second it hit my mailbox, though the first issue didn't debut until a full year after I'd started my journey, I did go alone through the Kingdom of Hyrule. And what kept me company throughout my whole journey was the music of Koji Kondo. And now for a brief intermission. If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. We return now to the soundtrack show. The overworld theme in The Legend of Zelda is on an endless loop. Though it's broken up every time you enter a cave or a dungeon or die and have to start over. But this loop of music is less than a minute long. And I must have heard this loop thousands and thousands of times when I was 12 years old. So much so that it was still in my head when I rode my bike to school when I was running laps in P.E. class, when I was daydreaming during pre-algebra. The loop is presented, like all Nintendo games, through an onboard synth that has a simple polyphony, only three voices and a noise generator. That's all that Kondo-san and his team had to work with in order to provide the game with music and sound effects. But what's so interesting about it is its musical merit, its complexity, and how it mirrors the spirit of adventure and exploration that would be found in the Zelda series for years to come. It's the first melody in what would become a whole collection of motifs that make up the robust world of Hyrule. And even in this early, primitive stage, it sets the bar pretty high. Let's take a listen to the overworld melody, the main gameplay melody of The Legend of Zelda from 1987. Okay, a four-bar little intro, descending bass line, cadences into the main melody here. Ooh, major melody soars. Now minor. Whoa, key change, I think. More descending, darkness, minor. Now a pivot chord, where we go? Oh, back to the dominant. Major, happy. Now minor again. What's this chord? There it is again. Now dominant. Such uncertainty. Now that pivot chord again. And back to the cadence. To the top of the loop. Before we get into the analysis of what we just heard, I want to talk a little bit about this piece of music's history. Originally, composer Koji Kondo had planned to use a piece of orchestral music by Maurice Ravel, entitled Bolero. But late in production... Kondo-san found out that the piece wasn't old enough to be in public domain. Bolero, a very famous piece written for the Paris Opera, based on a slow Spanish dance of the same name, premiered in 1928. The piece would not become public domain then until around 2003 or so. So Kondo sat and wrote a piece for Zelda to replace his 8-bit Bolero arrangement. The music that would become Zelda's overworld theme 
was reportedly written in just one day. Now, I don't want to make too much of that, but this does seem to be a common theme amongst composers, having to find inspiration at the very last minute, very quickly. Again, film composers often have mere weeks to write music for an entire feature. Heck, there's a historical precedence here. Mozart didn't write his famous overture for The Marriage of Figaro, that famous opera, until the morning of its premiere, placing parts in front of his orchestra for the first time that day. So unlike Kondo-san's piece for Super Mario Brothers, which was iterated on multiple times over months of development, this piece came to him in just one day. Sorry to interject a personal story here, but since this is about video games, um, I was co-producing the score for Star Wars The Force Unleashed as its audio lead, and I was working with composer Mark Grisky, and he'd written... He had written so much great music, so many great different themes, but I just felt like we didn't have that main theme, that main title theme yet. And uh, Grisky had been pushed so hard, he was exhausted, he was prepping for the recording session. And I turned to my colleague, Jesse Harlan, and I said, we need a main theme for this game. I went to lunch, and I'm not kidding you, over the lunch hour, he wrote a melody for this main theme that became the main title of The Force Unleashed. He gave it to Mark, and 24 hours later, Mark had arranged it and orchestrated it in this brilliant way, and suddenly we had our main title, over a lunch hour. I'm telling you, this stuff happens all the time. Anyway, back to The Legend of Zelda. I want to take a listen to some of Ravel's Bolero, a piece that features this 6-4 rhythmic ostinato, or rhythmic pattern, for the better part of 20 minutes, as the orchestra slowly builds in strength over the course of that 20 minutes, until the music is this joyous, vibrant celebration. Here is part of Bolero towards the end. Hear that rhythmic pattern. Certainly slower than the Zelda theme, but familiar nonetheless. Let's listen to The Legend of Zelda's Overworld theme. It's clear that what really survived here is the idea of a continuous rhythmic pattern. Bolero is like this 18-minute trance, a slow build in intensity. This constant rhythmic pattern in Zelda also puts a trance on the gamer, providing this forward motion, encouraging us to keep going, to keep exploring. But other than that, I feel like this overworld piece is really very unique to Zelda. A couple of things to notice about Zelda's overworld theme. First of all, it covers multiple modalities. It starts with a strong, heroic B-flat, with the root on top. 
okay, just like Star Wars. But the bass line descends a step. Immediately giving us a sense of mixed modality. What that means is that it's not going to be purely diatonic, purely major, purely, if you will, a bright and happy piece. Definitely not that. But it is establishing its tonal center around B flat. And then demonstrating in this intro how it will be moving away from it with this baseline dissension. So when looking at it, this second chord, with that flat seven in the bass, an A flat, lets us know that this heroic adventure will have its share of danger. This chord, by the way, sounds like a flat seven chord, like an A flat major. And while it kind of functions that way, it's actually, for you music theory nerds out there, a minor five chord in first inversion, or an F minor with an A flat in the bass, with this little rocking suspension on top. But I digress. These borrowed minor chords continue under our heroic B flat with a G flat major chord, the flatted six chord. Again, Kondosan is immediately establishing a mix between major and minor modes. Finally, we arrive at our F sus to F major chord, our dominant chord, letting us know that we're going to resolve back to our tonal center of B flat in a glorious cadence. And that's just the intro. From there, we start to hear our A section, the main melody, establishing the B-flat major with a presentation, then a conjunct ascension up a B-flat major scale while the bass line is still descending. So the two parts are now going in opposite directions. I mean, now that we're past our ready, set, go intro that we had, and we're into the world of exploration, Kondosan uses an ascending melody and a descending bass line to musically paint this vast space within this new world of Hyrule. The ascension and dissension continues, now in a borrowed minor. Kind of giving us B-flat minor at the top of the scale. Again, mixed modalities. Danger, Link, danger. So what is this? This feels like a flat six chord in the key of B-flat. We were here, and now we're here. But wait! All of a sudden, we have this shift to D-flat major, which momentarily feels like a whole new key center, very early on in the main melody. This new key center emerges like a new land or unexplored area on the map. And now this new area, this new key of D-flat, imitates the previous bass ascension in B-flat major by going down a step to C-flat major. Then down to D-flat's relative minor, B-flat minor. By the way, this chord is a minor version of where we started. Here. Look how far we've already come. It's almost like our starting point has now been obscured. But then, suddenly... A transitional major chord pops up out of nowhere. 
a pivot chord, a C major chord. Where on earth is this melody going? Finally, the arrival of our original dominant, the F chord. Ah, so that C major was a five of five, setting up a cadence back to the original theme of adventure, almost as if we got momentarily lost, but found our bearings again and are now back at the top of the loop. Or are we? Wait, there's more to this piece. We get the melody again, almost a newfound determination. A feeling of progression as we go through these same steps. But instead of landing on the D-flat, or that new from out of nowhere key change, or new land, we know where we're going now. We confidently march forward into danger as we hear a major dominant coming out of a B-flat minor modality. We momentarily feel like we're in this B-flat harmonic minor, which sets up this real 19th century spookiness that's coming up right here in this piece. And this is the wildest chord in the whole piece right here. Listen to this chord. And now listen to what Kondo-san is doing with the melody. For you theory nerds, I feel like this is some of that jazzy tension that even Ravel had going on in Bolero with his melodic dissonances. This looks like it's functioning as a sort of 7 diminished 7 of 5. An E diminished 7, fully diminished resolving into F, but with some jazzy tensions in the melody, a flat 13 and a ninth. Anyway, for you non-musicians listening, this isn't your run-of-the-mill harmony. And though we're still feeling like we're circling around B-flat, B-flat major, Kondosan then jumps a full tritone away from this F to a C-flat major making us realize that even though we pushed forward earlier, we're still going to get turned around. There's still more to discover, always more. We're back now, momentarily, in that other key of D-flat, and now the B-flat minor. And then the pivot 5 of 5 with the C major. And now back to the dominant F, which will finally cadence us back to the top of the loop. This all happens, everything that I just laid out, happens in less than a minute, at a very quick tempo. In less than a minute, we're treated to mixed chord progressions, temporary key shifts, some great chromaticism, some wild harmony, all set against this triplet rhythmic ostinato, or pattern, dot, 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 a la Ravel's Bolero. And gamers around the world have heard this loop and this melody over and over again for decades. When it came time to establish the musical boundaries for The Legend of Zelda, Koji Kondo pushed, like the game itself, to the very edges of the musical map, all in under the length of a minute. The soundtrack show will continue in a moment. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. There are other great musical moments in the original Legend of Zelda. 
But like the music in Mario Brothers, the actual written music is really brief. For example, when you enter a dungeon, the music sounds like this. Okay, hmm, a repeating arpeggio on the top, but with a melody in the bass. Uh, I like that. The melody is underground. It's the opposite of the soaring overworld melody. The accompanying harmony is repeating up top, with the melodic content down below. A nice wink to the game design. When you die as Link, you hear these descending 16th notes. Well, that's very clear. And when asked if you'd like to continue from your last save, you hear this music as you make the choice. Uh, kind of bouncy, almost like a gamey afterlife. You're suspended in time as you're deciding what to do. You make your decision to rest or to venture on. But when you get to Death Mountain, finally, oh man, this music legitimately scared me when I first found Death Mountain. I knew, I just knew that I wasn't supposed to be there yet. Even when I finally had all the pieces of the Triforce, I still didn't want to be there. Let's listen to the musical loop of Death Mountain. Oh boy, okay. Yeah, I don't want to be in here. No, no. First of all, there's this pulsing bass line and those dreadful chords. It's kind of polytonal, kind of clustery, kind of dissonant. Oh, geez. Let's break this down. First of all, it's not the short melody that gets me, but the way the melody is harmonized. If you remember some of our earliest episodes of the soundtrack show, we discussed Diabolus in Musica, the devil's tone, the tritone. It can be such a haunting sound if used within a certain context, and that's exactly what's happening on Death Mountain. The melody is sounding a tritone apart the entire time. As you hear the melody, you hear a tritone playing that same melody beneath it. As you hear the melody, what's more is that there's this chromatic descending pulsing bass line, adding even more dissonance to the piece, more tension. It's almost like what you hear in Jaws. I mean, indeed, this is like Kondo doing some classic Williams-level stuff here. And I'd be remiss if I didn't mention some great monikers or sound effects in The Legend of Zelda, some of which have gone on to become full-blown melodies in their own right in future games. When you play the Magic Recorder, you hear this melody. This is a neat little melody that really sticks out more as a sound effect in the first game, as it isn't harmonized with the main track really at all. I mean, listen to this. But in later Zelda games, such as the Ocarina of Time, it'll be harmonized like this in the game's main menu. By the way, this little line for the recorder was not actually written by Koji Kondo, but as an effect by Toru Minigishi. Another absolutely chilling line that Minigishi-san wrote was this melody when you discovered a correct solution or a solved puzzle. Check this out. Wild. 
You know, it might be hard to understand if you haven't played the game, but this line was a huge reward. Sometimes earning it at the end of a puzzle or when making a discovery on a map, as I did when I was 12, could literally take weeks. Then finally, oh, a breakthrough. To this day, this sound is the sound that my phone makes whenever I receive a text message from a friend or family member. Anyway, a couple of other really great sound and music moments in the game. Something that has always been super creepy for me is a sound from the synth's noise generator. The sound of a dungeon boss waiting for you just in the next room. This detail is a brilliant creative stroke on behalf of the designers, especially with the limited resources and time back then. In fact, it's details like this that always make the Zelda series stand apart and lead the way from other games. Basically, you can hear this ominous breathing of whatever horrible creature was waiting for you in the next room as you approach the piece of the Triforce you were looking for in each respective dungeon. One last note about the original Zelda. We hear the overworld melody in a couple of different permutations, not just as the main track during gameplay. When you first launch the game, an epic presentation of the melody greets you as you see a beautiful logo, complete with a sword and a waterfall in the main menu. Ah, a different rhythmic ostinato. But a rhythmic ostinato nonetheless. When you finally find a piece of the Triforce, the overworld melody is played joyously as a fanfare. There it is! You did it! These are great early examples of thematic writing in the Zelda series. But as I mentioned before, this is just the beginning. The Legend of Zelda has sold 7.6 million copies to date including re-releases over the years. That alone would be a huge legacy for a game. But in 1988, a sequel was released called Zelda II The Adventure of Link. It's a wildly different game. In fact, it wasn't even going to originally be a Zelda game. That happened late in production. We won't cover it here, though there was some great adventurous music written by Koji Kondo. Zelda 2 sold well, it's kind of a footnote in the history of this franchise, because what would come next absolutely blew the doors off of open-world, story-driven console experiences. In 1992, Nintendo released The Legend of Zelda A Link to the Past in North America for the Super Nintendo. 
surpassed the original game in every way. 16-bit graphics, a bigger map, an introduction to more characters, more items like the ocarina, the hookshot, the Pegasus shoes, later known as Pegasus boots, and much, much more. It started what would become a tried-and-true formula for Zelda story games, and for open-world exploration and side quests. And it introduced us to the concept of traveling to different planes of reality, the dark world where everything is flipped, that you can warp to and from. But most importantly for our discussion here, this is where we start to see Koji Kondo's music for The Legend of Zelda become Wagnerian in its scope. Suddenly, there are themes for different places, themes for different characters, themes for the fairies that can heal you, theme for Zelda, all presented on an eight-voice engine that could do stereo, with effects like echo, and even play audio samples that could be loaded into its whopping 64 kilobytes of available memory. Again, incredibly primitive by any digital audio standard, but this was an exponential leap forward for the development team. And Kondo-san and his team did not disappoint. On a personal note, I was sadly already off in high school at this point, and I don't think I got a Super Nintendo until years later. That's when I finally experienced this game. I was blown away by the jump in quality and found the dramatic musical storytelling to be very inspiring. Many fans of The Legend of Zelda, and of video games in general, consider A Link to the Past to be the greatest game of the Zelda series, if not one of the greatest games of all time. But for me, as great as A Link to the Past was, the best was still yet to come. Before we conclude our discussion on the origins of The Legend of Zelda, I want to leave you with a recording of a fully orchestrated version of the original Zelda Overworld theme, so that we can hear it in all of its musical glory. It's always good to remember, as I've said before, that when it comes to video game music, especially in the early days, it's best not to judge a book by its 8-bit cover. Let's take a listen to the main theme from The Legend of Zelda, recorded at the 30th anniversary concert. episode, we're going to discuss what might be my all-time favorite console game and all-time favorite game score, The Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time from 1998. Thank you.
The Soundtrack Show is an iHeartRadio podcast. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.